Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of way to win and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of the Talking Feds podcast, a weekly roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Most news commentary is delivered in 90-second sound bites that just scratch the surface of a new development, not Talking Feds. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. We dig deep, but keep it fun. Plus sidebars detailing important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities, such as Robert De Niro explaining whether the president can pardon himself, and Carol King explaining whether members of Congress can be disqualified from higher office, and music by Philip Glass. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. So, Renato, do you still have your own podcast? Yeah, it's complicated. What's so complicated about a podcast? That's the name of the podcast, remember? Oh, will you still be exploring topics that help us understand the week's news? You bet. But we'll have a new name because we're going to be working together to explore complicated issues that are dominating the news. Working together? Yeah, you're hosting it with me, remember? Oh, right. Wait. Does that mean our podcast is going to have a steam mop segment? Let's not get carried away, but we'll discuss hot new legal topics. So check out our new episode coming soon to everywhere you get podcasts as well as YouTube. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. (laughs) 
Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to Episode 5 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, January 1st, 2023. And you know, Andrew, I've said 2022 was the year of investigations and 2023 is hopefully the year of accountability. I'm Allison Gill, and today I am joined by my co-host to the incredible former director, acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Allison. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. So we didn't have a lot of special counsel news this week, but tell everyone what we have on deck. That's right. We didn't, but we planned for that. And so we have, I think, what I think is going to be a great show for folks teed up. You know, I I feel like um, in all the time I spent working in the FBI, every case is a story. And as a case agent or a supervisor or, you know, further on up you go up the chain, you have to understand so many different stories and carry all the stories of these cases around in your head. And the best way for me to do that was always to understand like the people involved in the case to understand where they came from, what their deal was, what their bio, you know, their background, their bio was. And so that's what we're trying to do with Jack Smith for all of our listeners today. So we're going to go through where he comes from, you know, very briefly on where he grew up, his education, and then the major career stops that he's made in different places like in U.S. attorney's offices and the Department of Justice and, of course, his uh, his work overseas. We're going to talk about cases that he's worked, some cases that he's notable cases that he's won, some notable cases that he lost along the way, and what maybe he learned from those experiences uh, that will impact or tell us something about how he thinks about his current responsibilities. Yeah. And and I remember we did this uh, early on in the in the Mueller She Wrote uh, episode. There was so much news that was coming out. We didn't start the first episode until after the Rick Gates and Manafort indictments hit. But right around week 17, we were able to get into a, a biopod, if you will, <laughs> of the man nice. himself. And uh, we have a very great surprise for everybody. A little bit later in the show, we are going to hear the actual voice of Jack Smith uh, in some closing arguments at The Hague during one of the trials and that he was involved with overseeing there. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that case uh, because that is news. That is something that just recently happened. Uh, That's absolutely right. Just a, about, you know, a week and a half ago. So uh, I'm going to kick us off, Andrew. We're going to talk about a little early life, little Jack Smith early life. He grew up John L. Smith in Clay, New York, which is a suburb of Syracuse. Um he attended Liverpool High School in Liverpool, New York, and he graduated in 1987. So he's kind of our age, my yeah, friend. Yeah, I'm class of 86 <laughs> right over here. Come on. Class of 91. <laughs> what, what? Yeah. Uh, and he was described by his friend Scott Hansen as funny and upbeat. Uh, he was also a defensive lineman on the football team. Interesting defense. That's He's right. Tall and skinny, and he was a bench warmer mostly. He sat on the bench more than he played. But he was always there. Kind of this is sort of like a Rudy, Rudy sort of story, right? <laughs> there he, you go. He was always there. He always put his heart into it. He never sulked uh, about it. Uh, he he cheered on his teammates like it was his job. And and Coach George, I think, Mangiacaro remembers him as very quiet, a tall kid who never failed to show up for practice. 
you know, you can hear the coach's appreciation for him in that statement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like if if you've ever led any group of people, whether it's a coach of a football team or a supervisor at work or whatever you've been, you always deeply appreciate the low drama hard workers that show up every day, put their 100% best effort into things. Um, I mean, for my, you know, for all the teams that I've led over the course of my career, I'll take five of those guys over a hundred high flyers any day of the week, right? You can get some serious work done with people that are just absolutely dedicated and not constantly obsessed with, you know, attracting attention. And that sounds like the kind of guy that uh, Jack Smith at least started out as, which I think is a good sign. Right. Sort of the opposite of of Rudy, who, you know, never get in between Rudy Giuliani and a microphone uh, is, you know, that's what he's known for. This is sort of the opposite, opposite kind of guy. And, that's right. In in more ways than one. He scored very high on his SATs, for example. I haven't seen Rudy's SATs, but I don't imagine they're probably <laughs> great. Um, he started out I don't think th- you could score particularly highly on them now. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go there. Uh, he, he maintained a 4.0 grade point average at State University of New York. So he's a state schooler. Top 1% score on his LSAT. So very sharp. Went to Harvard Law School. Graduated with honors. In 94, so 87, graduated Harvard Law School in 94 with honors. And then that's sort of the early life, sort of how we see uh, him shaping up uh, as, uh, you know, the early beginnings uh, of a prosecutor. And then we kind of get into some of the, uh, the work he got into immediately after graduating from Harvard. Yeah, so it's kind of notable to me that Jack goes right out of law school into a prosecutor's job. Like most most law school grads, you know, particularly graduates from places like Harvard, they go to judicial clerkships and then maybe start do a few years in a in a kind of a high paying big white shoe law firm, you know, somewhere in New York or D.C. something like that. Not Jack. He goes right into public service and he does it at the New York County DA's office. Now, for those non New Yorkers that are listening to us today, of course, you know the five boroughs of New York. Each one of those boroughs is a separate county that has its own independent DA's office. The New York County DA's office is the infamous Manhattan DA. So Jack starts out at the Manhattan DA's shop and he works, most we could figure out about this was that he worked in the sex crimes and also violent crimes sections. That's that's per uh, Syracuse.com. So we don't have too much detail to offer about his experiences there, except that he stayed for five years, which is about typical for a first stop on a uh, new prosecutor's career. And in 1999, He made the jump up to kind of the prosecutorial big leagues when he moved over to the federal side in the Eastern District of New York. He got called up to the show, the big show. That's right. He got called up to the majors. (laughs) So, you know, New York is, is a weird bird for many, many reasons, one of which is that you have two separate federal uh, U.S. attorney's offices in the city. You have the one that's based in Manhattan, the Southern District of New York, the infamous uh, Southern District of New York. You hear so much about the place where none other than Rudy Giuliani was a U.S. attorney at one point in his career. Um, and then there's the Eastern District of New York, which is the maybe less well-known, kind of harder working, you know, blue-collar-ish office located over in Brooklyn. I have, My heart is... Uh, um, uh, I have a particular fondness in my heart for the Eastern District. It's where I made all of my first cases as a young agent in New York. I had great experiences over there working with so many terrific prosecutors, to include, of course, Andrew Weissman, who was here on the show a couple of weeks ago. 
So Jack Smith gets his start in the Eastern District of New York in 1999. Right off the bat, we understand that he prosecuted civil rights cases um, and particularly a notorious police murder case. So this was a case of Ronell Wilson, uh, who we know that in 2003, uh, Wilson, as a member of what the prosecution went on to call the Stapleton crew, murdered two NYPD detectives, James Namoran and Rodney Andrews, during an undercover sting on a gun buy in Staten Island. This was a huge case uh, in New York. The murder occurred in 2003. In 2006, Wilson was convicted and sentenced to death. It was the first death sentence delivered in New York in over or 50 years, I think, at, at that time. The case then rambles through the most complicated series of appeals I think I've ever seen. Um, initially, on appeal, the death sentence is thrown out because uh, the court, the appellate court, objected to a jury instruction that was given in which they referred to Wilson as being unremorseful because he neglected to speak on his own behalf at his sentencing, which was considered to be an impermissible uh, statement to the jury. In 2013, the death penalty is reinstated after a resentencing by a new jury. And then in finally in 2016, it is eliminated again because Wilson is, is judged to be mentally handicapped. So kind of a crazy history to that core to that case but for our purposes really interesting one because it's a super high profile case the media coverage of criminal cases in new york is it's unbelievably intense and so right off the bat jack smith has this kind of foundational experience in a high profile homicide case that literally everybody is reading about on the front page of the paper every day during trial i'm sure Mo Foderman, who worked with Jack Smith at the Eastern District, described him as, and I quote, one of the best trial lawyers I have ever seen, a phenomenal investigator, gets to the true facts. Uh, I love this. Mo also describes him as, quote, literally insane about <laughs> cycling and triathlons. So as a uh, as a devoted cyclist and triathlete myself, I can totally appreciate that. Um, so Jack goes on to serve as the chief of criminal litigation and the deputy chief of the criminal division in the Eastern District, where he supervised about 100 criminal prosecutors uh, in cases involving violent, uh, violent crimes, gang crimes, white collar cases, financial fraud, uh, and also public corruption. So that's like everything that January 6th has to offer right there. <laughs> totally, totally, right? You're going right from the basic violent crimes all the way up to the crazy, uh, hard to prove white collar. Yeah, we have, we have violent crimes. We have gang crimes with, you know, the Proud Boys and the... Um... And the Oath Keepers, we have white collar crimes going all the way up to like Eastman and Clark and everything that happened at the DOJ financial fraud. We have the Save America PAC investigation and the Sydney Powell PAC investigation and public corruption. I mean, you know, that's uh, obvious. Uh, so that I, th I thought that was interesting, too. And I, I also wonder a little bit about prosecuting that case of what you know with the murder of the two police if you know what his personal thoughts were uh, about that and and if that if there's any like sort of transference to january 6th with that and the cops that that were endangered by the incitation uh, of the insurrection and, and 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 how that might how these earlier cases you know and we'll talk about this more later in the show might inform his you know zeal i guess yeah, totally. I mean, I know um, from my own experiences as, a, as an agent in New York, 
I made mistakes, right? On my first cases, we all do. And those mistakes, you learn from them and you carry those lessons through the rest of your career. Every big case I ever worked uh, later in my career was benefited by the first, the very first big case I worked out of uh, the Eastern District in New York it was a, uh, a RICO case against a Russian organized crime crew. And I learned so much there. I would expect that Jack probably had some of those same experiences. Like for, for instance, in this one, clearly the prosecution went, they swung a little too hard for the fences in their summation and the comments they made about Wilson and his his failure to get up and speak in his own defense at his sentencing. And that came back to hurt them, right? It cost them uh, the initial appeal that wiped out the uh, death penalty the first time. So, you know, you wonder if experiences like that have kind of caused him to like think twice before you go for the dramatic flourish uh, in front of the jury and maybe, you know, take a more measured um kind of evidence-based tone and all your, and all your, uh, approaches. So, you yeah. know, we're speculating, but, um, but it's interesting, interesting stuff to talk about. Um, Jack's partner on the Wilson case is a prosecutor named Colleen Cavanaugh. And recently, uh, Colleen said about Jack quote, there is no mystery here. He's a hardworking, smart person who knows how to move cases. That's who he is. He comes in and he gets things done. Yeah. And that that feels like kind of what we've been hearing in the media about uh, his disposition. He's a closer, right? He the, he he comes in and gets things done. We've heard it uh, repeatedly. And it, you know, it, it just sort of drives home the point that, you know, a lot of folks were like, oh, Merrick Garland is punting this. He doesn't want to do it. He's going to hand it over to somebody else. Uh, and a lot of folks were worried that he was handing it off to have the case you know, wind down. And I just don't see that at all. I just don't see you bringing in Jack Smith to close a case. Um, It just doesn't make sense to me. I totally agree. And you and I have discussed this from the beginning. I I don't think you bring in a special counsel at all to deliver a declination. I mean, that's, um, you could do that on your own, right? Yeah. I talked about, I've talked about this on, on, on the Daily Beans. I said, look, if if Merrick Garland were truly out to protect Trump, as some people are accusing him of doing, very simple uh, solution for him to do that. You you whip up an Office of Legal Counsel memo saying why this isn't prosecutable. You you hide it from FOIA requests under deliberative process privilege, because uh, he knows how to do that now that, that he went through it with the Bill Barr memo in 2019, the March 2019 Bill yeah. Barr memo. Uh, refusing to uh, say that any was you know that uh, obstruction of justice didn't happen in the Mueller investigation, and you and you file it away, and it goes away, and it disappears, and you don't have to say anything about it because the Department of Justice isn't bound by any regulations to report declination decisions for prosecutions. That's how you make this disappear. If you wanted to make this disappear, you don't hire a special counsel who's kind of known for bringing prosecutions and being a closer uh, to 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 wind it down and cover things up and brush it under the rug. It's just, that doesn't seem, of, of course, Andrew, all of this is, is speculative, but that just makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I, you know, it's not that he doesn't have a decision to make or a recommendation to make. He certainly does. And that could go in either direction. It's, there's no guarantee that there will be an indictment here on anything. Um, but I think the fact that you bring in a guy like Jack Smith, who has a history of, stepping in and put, putting in objective evaluation on ongoing cases and making decisions about what to push forward and what to let go, um, that says 
hey, we're the ball is still in the air and we are pushing this thing and we're going to see where the facts land. So, yeah, this is this is this is less about. uh all right, Jack, you dis- you come in and close the case or you come in and indict. And it's more about you come in and make the decisions because exactly. I need to insulate myself politically because now I am an appointee of the opponent of the person that we're investigating. That's exactly so, right. Um, and what's interesting is is that he, I, the absolute like line of just being a prosecutor from beginning to end here. Um, we, we, you know, we, we go ahead now to 2008 when he was in the office of the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. That's The Hague. Um, and, and he was investigations coordinator from 2008 to 2010, according to The New York Times. He oversaw investigations of government officials, militia members wanted for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. And And Andrew, that's an interesting choice to go from you know, working at the DA's office in Manhattan to working at the Eastern District of New York to then go work at the ICC. Totally. Like, so we talked about the choice to go right from Harvard Law School into the Manhattan DA's office. Now here we see another really bold choice. You know, nine years in the Eastern District of New York, that will get you a prime job as a top flight litigator in any number of, uh, you know, white shoe, high paid law firms in New York. And that is the path that most, uh, you know, assistant U.S. attorneys for kind of line assistant prosecutors, they take, they do anywhere five to 10 years as a prosecutor, and then they jump into the private sector and really cash in and good for them. It's a great opportunity, but not our Jack. He decides in 2008 to kind of, uh, book his flight for The Hague, uh, a place that probably most Americans couldn't find on a map, and to to dive into kind of an obscure, true specialist prosecutorial role here, right? So you're, now you're dealing with international criminal law, which is a strange and nebulous thing because there basically is no kind of, you know, universal agreement on what those laws are. You really kind of, uh, you, you have to, um, stitch together uh, complicated, fraught, politically charged cases in faraway locations. Uh, it's hard to get those defendants in custody. It's even harder to stitch together cases to process to successfully prosecute those uh, defendants. And that's the role that he charges into next. Yeah, uh, and we it, don't have a. It is an interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt. It. It's a really interesting career path because, like you said, most folks come out of those DA offices and AUSAs as AUSAs in in the federal offices into a private firm. And then you've got all this private firm experience, which you can then take with you to a Department of Justice job. That's right. That's uh, right. <laughs> that's the typical path, right? Or U.S. attorney up to up to there. Uh, and so he's he's like, no, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick detour over here to the ICC, learn an entirely new um, set of laws that have to be applied because, you know, all of his experience so far is in, in, is in the American uh, criminal judicial system. And so now he's in the international courts and learning that whole entirely different set of, uh, of, of, of law. I mean, it's, and it's not just the law, it's also how to apply the law. And like you said, you, you rarely find these, these folks and, and it's, it seems very murky and niche and it's just, it was an interesting career choice, I thought, but it's, I think going to serve him well. We'll talk about that later. Absolutely. Absolutely. So he does that from 2008 until 2010, according to the New York times. And then in 2010, you know, you, you can never really, 
really ever escape the call of the mothership. Uh, it's no different in DOJ than it is at the uh, FBI. And when you're out in the field, you know, living the good life and the phone rings and somebody tells you it's time to come back to headquarters. So it looks like Jack Smith got one of those calls in 2010, likely from Laney Brewer, who was at the time, uh, he was the acting attorney general for cr the criminal division. And uh, Jack decides to uh, end his European sojourn and head back to D.C. to be the head of DOJ's public integrity section, which uh, insiders routinely refer to as PIN. Um, public integrity is the place that basically oversees all of the political corruption cases and kind of um, you know fraud cases by people serving in positions of public trust uh, around the country. It's a very high pressure uh, place to work. Um, the cases are impactful. They are high profile. And of course, they're political by definition, right? So it's each case is kind of buffeted by very strong opinions for and against, much like the, uh, the, the case that uh, Jack is currently working on. So in 2010, he rolls into Penn. Now, at the time, Penn is really on shaky ground. The department and the FBI had suffered a kind of a bitter defeat in the investigation and prosecution of former Senator Ted Stevens, Republican of Alaska. We could do a whole episode on the Ted Stevens <laughs> cases and all the problems that were there, but essentially Stevens was prosecuted and I believe his convictions were vacated on appeal. There were no all kinds of problems in the investigation and with the case agents and the informants and relationships between them and there were serious issues. In addition to having the case thrown, I I'm pretty sure the prosecutors got like um, reprimanded by the judge. But this was like stuff that was happening right before he got to Penn, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So he arrives, and they're still kind of like trying to get the feet their feet back underneath them. Um, and so, so uh, Jack's first few months at Penn were spent basically reviewing all of the major investigations and cases that they had going uh, in Penn at that time. Um, and in many of those cases, uh, our, our, our man Smith decides to issue essentially declination letters, close the cases, and eliminate the prosecutions of some pretty no uh, notable figures on the Hill. So here's here's a few of the names of folks whose cases were dismissed by, by Jack Smith not long after he arrived at Penn. So it's Senator John Ensign of Nevada, who was a Republican, uh, Representative Tom DeLay of Texas, another Republican, Representative Jerry Lewis of California, a another Republican, Representative Alan B. Mollahan of West Virginia, a Democrat, and Representative Don Young of Alaska, a Republican who coincidentally just died last year. So he came in and sort of closed all those cases based yeah. on reading into what the prosecutors had put built before he got there. And I, I guess I'm assuming was like, we don't we don't these aren't cases we can win. Uh, there were problems maybe uh, in the investigations and prosecutions. And and I, f I feel like, Andrew, what that says to me is that if he steps in here and reviews and is read in on all the cases on, on, on January 6th, insurrection, obstruction, uh, finances, uh, and, um, of course, the documents case, that if, if he looks over these and doesn't just start dismissing cases... <laughs> Uh, I feel that that says that the Department of Justice up to this point has put together good cases and done good work or solid work or at least work enough to to build potential cases on or potential prosecutions on. 
uh, because he seems to me like the kind of guy where if he doesn't feel like they have the case or the work hasn't been done, uh, you know, up to snuff to to obtain and maintain convictions upon appeal, that he isn't going to let them sort of go forward. And it, it reminds me, Andrew, of Matt Graves when he arrived at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, because I think he came in November uh, or so of 2021. And before he was there, there was a guy named Mike Sherwin. And mm-hmm. uh, I think we've talked a little bit about Mike effing Sherwin as my nickname for him. We'll just <laughs> leave it at that. But he was uh, he, he wanted to bring, you know, he went on 60 Minutes and said, we're going to bring seditious conspiracy ca- uh, charges against these Oath Keepers. And uh, then was dressed down by Judge Amit Mehta for discussing yep. that on 60 Minutes. And then he was uh, about to be referred over to the, you know, the unit that puts sanctions on you. And he resigned before that happened. And according to public reporting, Mike Sherwin brought a seditious conspiracy case against the Oath Keepers to Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland said, nah, bro, you don't have it. We don't have it. Mm-hmm. And in comes Matt Graves and is able to button that case up and bring the charges successfully, at least against Stuart Rhodes and Megs. Now we have two other seditious conspiracy trials on sure. the way. Yep. But it seems like there was enough cleanup that could be done, enough rescuing in those cases that could be done to bring those charges. So I'm I'm very interested to see uh, how, and now it's been five or six weeks since, you know, uh, Jack Smith has been appointed. Very interested to see. I mean, we haven't seen any big dismissals or declinations or, or refusals to prosecute him. And I want to be clear that we might not see that until the final report uh, comes out. I don't think they announced declinations to prosecute along the way, but they would have to, you know, I guess, close a case um, in court. So I, I just think that this is a very uh, interesting and very, it, ta- it speaks a lot to to why they decided to specifically bring Jack Smith on board. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think your your proposition is fair if we don't see, the, you know, the long, the more time that goes by that we don't see things getting kind of thrown by the wayside, it's probably an indication that uh, Smith has reviewed what they have, what they've done, and feels that there's a, there's a path and a reason to keep going forward. Um, you know, uh, Brewer described Smith as a guy who makes the tough decisions. Um, he's he sees his job as pushing for a conclusion, and that it's not. And he realizes it's not fair to let inquiries linger. Um, so factor all that in. Having had this experience before in the Eastern District about, or I'm sorry, in Penn about, you know, looking at these high-profile cases, making an honest assessment, and determining where it's time to, you know, fish or cut bait. Um, you can imagine that he's doing that uh, with his current responsibilities. The only the only solid indicators we have so far are in the context of the Mar-a-Lago case, and there he is clearly dug in. They have taken some aggressive moves in the Mar-a-Lago case, even since he's been on board with the filings they've made in court with respect to um, the appellate work that they've done and the move for contempt charges against the Trump team for essentially failing to produce additional evidence and com- failing to comply with the uh, grand jury subpoenas over the classified material. So he's clearly moving that one forward. <laughs> you know, there's, we don't need to, I don't believe there's any declinations going on in that one, unless something really turned around quickly uh, when we weren't looking, but um, yeah, I think he's, I think he's charging forward. Yeah. And, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more uh, after the break about uh, his work at Penn and what some folks had to say, about him shortly after he took that job. Uh, And we're going to do that, like I said, right after this quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Okay, we are back and resuming our march through Jack Smith's career and some of the more notable cases, things that he said along the way, and of course, uh, lessons he may have learned from some of these notable cases. Um, so uh, when we last spoke, we we uh, Jack had gotten his feet underneath him at Penn, conducted some reviews of ongoing cases. During that period, and shortly after taking the job, um, Smith told the AP that he saw his role as serving people like he grew up with in central New York. And I quote, they pay their taxes, they follow the rules, and they expect their public officials to do the same. That is a great quote from a prosecutor. <laughs> Standard, you know, uh, for the love of God and country, I'm going to hold people accountable. Um, so it's exactly kind of what you would what you would hope to see. Uh, from a guy in that position. Lanny Brewer, who uh, who we mentioned before, recruited Jack to come back to Penn, has described him as a terrific prosecutor with a real sense of fairness. Uh, Brewer went on to say, if you're going to have a special prosecutor, you want him to be fearless, but fair, and not going to be intimidated and not overly bureaucratic. That's Jack. He's all these things. How do you think that differs from uh, Mueller, or does it? I think it's I think it's similar in the most substantial ways, right? So I know I know Mueller to be certainly fearless and fair. I think his performance as special counsel is certainly a testament to his fairness. Maybe he was more fair than a lot of people would have liked him to have been. Um uh, overly bureaucratic. That's that's a tougher call. Yeah, um, I was gonna say Mueller strikes me as a little more a little more bureaucratic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, he's an older school guy, right? He can't comes from a very different um a different history, different path, uh, uh certainly through this country and his through his military service and uh his time developing as an early lawyer and some of his experiences. So, um I you know, I don't know Jack Smith personally. I do know Mueller personally. Um if I had to take a guess, I think Jack Smith is a little bit more modern, right? Maybe a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more willing to kind of, um, you know, land in a new place on some of these issues. Whereas Mueller is very much um, a servant of uh, precedent. Yeah, he sort of went out of his way to err on the side of caution, I think. Uh, yeah. I think Mueller did. And um, I think the New York Times said of of Jack that he has another very important thing, you know, going back to the politicization of of the Department of Justice. They say Jack is not political at all. He is straight down the middle. Now, we've heard some arguments from the right wing, from from the MAGA camp that he is. uh, (laughs) And I have to say, this reminds me of what happened to you. Um, Just you know, straight down the middle, but then in comes Trump and says, yes, but your wife uh, did this and uh, your daughter is this way. And, you know, just throwing everything he can think um, to 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 sort of politicize it himself. Right. To make it yeah. him the victim and to say you're coming after me because of my political stances. And it's like, well, if your political stances are crimes, then yes, we are coming after you for your political stances. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, and it's it's really dispiriting to see the rest of that community on the conservative side, the Republican side is, is just kind of aping those same tactics and doing it now, of course, um, targeting um, Jack Smith and, and his wife. Like they don't have 
there is absolutely not a single piece of evidence that would point to a history of making political decisions uh, in his career. We've looked at it and we are looking at it today as closely as anybody has. And so you can't, if you can't say anything political about him, oh, the, the next best thing you can do is try to defame his wife. Uh, it's a disgusting tactic. And you're right. It's one that um, um, Jill and I had to suffer through as well, but it doesn't have, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't hold uh, any water whatsoever. Public corruption cases are, by definition, political, but that doesn't mean that the decisions in those cases and the decisions to open cases and pursue investigations are politically driven, but they they unavoidably impact politics in one way or another, which, you know, it's understandable. People have very heated opinions about that stuff. Yeah. And we're going to talk some more about those very political cases that are political in nature because you're in the public corruption. You know, I mean, these are investigations into elected officials and, and people who, That's right. who, who hold those positions. and. You know, during his his tenure there, he hired a ton of new prosecutors at the public corruptions unit and supervised dozens of them during his years there. Right now, I think he has a team of about, what, 40 or so that, mm -hmm. that he's supervising. Um, and, you know, it's it's very, I think, telling some of the previous cases that he was involved in either after he arrived at public corruption that were already going on or that he started or oversaw that began under his tenure at, at Penn. Can you talk about some of those examples? Yeah, sure. And, and you know, like, like we've been talking about these cases, the way to undermine those attacks is to look at the evidence and look at the proof and look at the convictions that come from independent juries of your peers, right? And so let's look at some of those cases. Um, one of the first ones I stumbled across was this prosecution of Representative Rick Renzi, who was a Republican of Arizona. He had a really troubled experience in, in Congress for a whole variety of reasons. This isn't the Rick Renzi show, so I won't go into all those. But nevertheless, uh, he was indicted in 2008 before Jack Smith was in public the public integrity section. Uh, lots of appeals during the pendency of his prosecution. Uh, but Renzi was ultimately convicted in 2013 on 17 out of 32 counts in a corruption case that had him accused of using his office for personal financial gain and basically looting a family insurance business to help pay for his 2002 campaign. Um, Renzi was convicted and ultimately served three years at Morgantown, West Virginia, and then notoriously pardoned by Donald Trump uh, in 2020. So hmm. here's one of those cases that was ongoing when he arrived, was probably subjected to the same sort of review that he applied to those other cases that he issued declinations in. And this one clearly had his support, went forward, and we have a pretty substantial conviction of a Republican. Uh -huh. So now let's flip the script. And let's talk about, does Jack Smith, while he's a pin, ever prosecute any Democrats? Well, in, uh, on June 3rd, 2011, after a two-year investigation, John Edwards, uh, Senator John Edwards from North Carolina, was indicted on six felony charges of violating multiple federal campaign contribution laws, basically to cover up an uh, extramarital affair to which he eventually admitted. So, here is a similar case against a senator for basically financial uh, skullduggery around campaign finances. Um, and this one, uh, Smith's team at Penn really went to the mat on. Edwards was, was facing four counts of collecting illegal campaign contributions and one count of conspiracy and an additional count of false statement. So 
His trial begins on April 23rd, 2012. And in May 2012, he is acquitted. So the jury ultimately finds him not guilty on one of the one of the counts of uh, illegal use of campaign funding, and then declared a mistrial on all remaining accounts. Uh, in the aftermath of this huge loss for Penn, um, DOJ decided to drop all charges against Edwards and announced that they would not uh, retry the charges against him. So DOJ basically washed their hands of it and walked away. I think this is an is a fascinating example. I can only imagine the conversations that went on around those tables in DOJ uh, over this one. But it really causes you to wonder, like, you know, you always learn more from your failures than you do from your successes. Mm. This is clearly a failure um, at Penn under Jack Smith's watch. And you wonder if maybe some of the things he took away from this was essentially what they failed to do is prove to the jury um, that Edwards had the requisite intent that the charges called for. So, you know, you have this distraction of the extramarital affair, and there was also an illegitimate child involved, uh, and all these allegations about taking essentially campaign funds and using them to pay for things for this woman and her child and to try to cover up the relationship that Edwards uh, had with her. Um, and despite all that salacious evidence, when they got back into the deliberation room, that jury sat there and could not come to an agreement as to whether or not Edwards had the requisite intent to be found guilty of the majority of these charges. Yeah. And it's also uh, interesting, I think, that despite um, it being difficult to prove, you know, intent, uh, he he not only I mean, this is a case that was being investigated before he got there. And then he just said this is another one he decided not to, you know, dismiss or or um, decline to prosecute. Uh, and he thought that he had the goods. He thought the law and the facts were on his side. Um, many would argue that they were. Um, and, and this is, by the way, in an in a Democratic administration uh, that that they decided to bring these charges. Uh, and so, if, you know, DOJ, not really surprised DOJ decided not to retry this case. However, I, I really think it speaks a lot to his dedication to facts and law and less about, well, what if one juror decides that the intent's right. not there, you know, sort right. of a more conservative approach where if you you know, you think possibly you might not be able to get that conviction. You just don't go forward with charges. He seems like the kind of person who would. And I don't think a lesson learned from this would be to not go forward with charges in those instances. No, I think you're right. But it may it may cause you to rethink this, the value and the impact of the witness of the evidence that you use to try to prove intent. And that could make you more cautious, more determined, more focused in cases and prosecutions that you um, are involved in as you go forward. Yeah. I also think it says something about walking away, realizing you lost, that the case that you put on was not sufficient to garner a conviction. And rather than taking it on as like a personal vendetta, well, we're going to try him again, because you do see a fair amount of that in cases that that have mistrials, you know, Um I'm sure Smith and his supervisors, his superiors at the department said, no, this is it. We're, this is a, uh, we got the message and this thing is, this thing is over. It's time, time to live, pick ourselves up, dust ourselves 
off and start all over again, I guess. Yeah, and, and here's now I know what I need next time uh, to, to prove that intent, which is going to come up uh, in, in these prosecutions uh, or potential prosecutions of Trump and his allies uh, with regard to both January 6th uh, and the the documents case, there's going to need to be uh, for some of the charges that you're going to have to prove some intent. And you know that very well from midterm exam. Yeah. I mean, look, intent is the it is the toughest piece of the puzzle that you have to find and assemble and insert into your picture in any white collar prosecution and certainly in any public corruption prosecution. In the Hillary Clinton email case, which you just referred to, I mean, that was essentially our conclusion at the end of that investigation was we didn't have clear enough, strong enough, convincing enough evidence of Secretary Clinton's intent to have you know classified material on her personal email system and the case was not you know it was not worth going forward it was not ready it wasn't uh, it didn't merit an indictment um you know yeah, I'm which, sure which makes sense because then first of all none of the documents or emails she had were marked uh, uh which is not the case in this case and then if, you know we went over with Andrew Weissman and Ryan Goodman their pros memo their model prosecution memo and one of the cases that they use to illustrate how this is different and how there is intent here in the Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case was the was midterm exam. They, you know, they use yeah. that as, as an example of here's when you don't and here's how it's different from what we have now. And they, they outline that pretty clearly. That's right. Um, coming up now in, in May of 2014, Andrew, uh, interviewed by House Oversight and Government Reform Committees. It, with regard to the Republican-led investigation uh, into alleged targeting of conservative nonprofits at the IRS, do you remember this? This was like the totally the Republicans were <laughs> totally like, remember. "Why do you keep investigating and taking away our tax-exempt status for only the conservative uh, things?" And it's like, well, because you all are the ones that are breaking the laws, but that's <laughs> not exactly what happened. <laughs> um, this was. Um... <laughs> this was a painful investigation. I was not involved in this thing at all until I got to uh, until I got to the Washington field office as ADIC in 20, whatever that would have been 14, 15, something like that. And there were still echoes of this case and and the final conclusion by by DOJ that no, there was no there was no indication that you know, improper selection or targeting was taking place at the IRS. It was a very hard uh, conclusion and a uh, very unpopular conclusion uh, to put out. So it was interesting to me in looking through some of these things to really to learn that uh, Jack Smith was questioned about a 2010 meeting he had with Lois Lerner. Lois Lerner was the IRS official really at the center of this inquiry. So in 2014, Jack goes in front of uh, the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, as we refer to Hoger. Uh, to be questioned about this meeting that he had with Lois Lerner in 2010. So we haven't seen the transcript of this. I don't believe it's public, but CNN has reported on this exchange and I apparently has had access to the transcript or seen it somehow. Um, and in that exchange, Smith explained that the purpose of the meeting with Lerner was to understand, quote, the evolving legal landscape of campaign finance law in the wake of the Citizens United decision. 
AG, of course, you know, Citizens United was basically the Supreme Court decision that really changed the face of campaign financing forever, essentially found that that uh, that political action committees and corporations essentially had First Amendment rights and could express those First Amendment rights by donating as much money as they wanted to uh, candidates. It's a very down and dirty explanation of <laughs> Citizens United. Um in any case, Jack also uh, spoke about a dialogue that he'd had with the FBI about opening investigations related to politically active nonprofits, but he did not actually open any cases. And I quote, Penn did not open any investigations as a result of those discussions. And we certainly, as you know, have not brought any cases as a result of that. So that's what uh, Jack testified to. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Carter Page uh, whining that that continues to go on. Oh, you you changed the email, the the Klein Smith guy, and you were spying on the Trump campaign. You were going after uh, Carter Page. Uh, blah blah blah. Seventeen problems with your FISA warrant, etc. It's like we didn't prosecute the guy. Like you know, and I I know that that's not the ultimate uh, sort of bellwether as to whether or not it was a good idea to do whatever had to be done. But you, you know, you and I and listeners of this program uh, generally know what that FISA warrant was about and that it was absolutely um, justified. And it was signed off by Rod Rosenstein. So, you know, on yeah. multiple occasions. So I don't I don't quite understand the the well, I guess I do understand the, the victimization there. But uh, it was just the only thing that I think he had as a sort of connection to any sort of spying on, on Donald's campaign, even even though Page wasn't even part of the campaign when those when those FISA warrants were issued. So it's it, yeah, it's sort I of mean, just a you know, reminder the, of that. Just rem, it's it like does. It, back. it has a it has a familiar smell to it uh, from those times. I think they're both good examples of the toxic mixture you get when you take criminal investigations, high stakes, high profile criminal investigations, and you infuse them with politics. And that's, you know, that's two very volatile things that are that are uh, unavoidably combined when you're working political corruption cases. Um, in this case, Smith finds himself right in the center of the political fight that's being, quite frankly, manipulated and um, by conservatives for their own political reasons. Uh, of course, same thing that happened uh, with the facts around the Carter Page FISA. Um, but I'm sure it was an uncomfortable place to be. Having uh, been there many times myself, I understand uh, the pressure that comes along with that. For us and for our listeners' purposes, it's kind of a good thing. Like This guy has been in the fire. And he's been he's gotten the call from the Hill to come up here, you know, come up here right away. We want to yell at you publicly about something. He's gone up, done the testimony, defended his position. In fact, he concluded his statement um, uh, to the committee by absolutely denying uh, that anyone at the department uh, was pressuring the IRS to do anything and went on to say, quote, anybody who knows me would never even consider asking me to do such a thing. So he's been in the crucible. He's under, he's gone through the pressure and the fire on the Hill. Those uh, experiences will serve him well with the cases he's dealing with now. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, the other uh, public corruption, one of the pin cases that he was involved with eventually ended up at the Supreme Court. And this is kind of like stood out to me as what if something that happens now ends up at the Supreme Court through a series of appeals? 
And uh, basically, this is the prosecution of former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. He was indicted in the Eastern District of Virginia on 14 counts related to accepting more than $135,000 in gifts. Now, McDonald, uh, McDonnell and his wife were convicted in September of 2014, about eight months later. And then in January of 2015, um, McDonnell was sentenced to two years in prison. And then, of course, six months later, the Fourth Circuit affirmed his conviction, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. But then in, it went up to the next year, it went up to the Supreme Court, and they vacated the conviction, holding that the trial court's const, uh, construction of the statutory term official act was too broad, encompassing activities such as setting up meetings, hosting parties, and calling Virginia officials to discuss business. And Andrew, the thing that stuck out in my head when I read about this going up to the Supreme Court and saying that they had too broad of a interpretation of the statute is this little sticking point with a guy named Judge Nichols, who has decided that the word otherwise in the statute, 18 Title 18 U.S. Code 1512C2, means that it can't be applied to some of the insurrection or to any of the insurrectionists on January 6th, obstructing an official proceeding. He is he has taken this to mean that you have to have do something with documents to to obstruct uh, an official proceeding. And you can't just like run in and zip tie people's hands behind their backs and threaten the whole lives of everybody there. And 18 other federal judges disagree with this. But there's this one guy and everyone's sort of like, well, why is the DOJ stuck on this one guy? Why don't they just let it go and whatever? They keep appealing it. It's still right now sitting in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to be decided upon before it goes up to the Supreme Court. And to me, what this says is this is Department of Justice tying up this one tiny potential loose end of a misinterpretation of a statute that may come into play later if there is a conviction of Donald Trump, for example, or John Eastman or anybody for 1512 C2 obstructing an official proceeding that would leave any door open for the Supreme Court to say that you misinterpreted this statute. And that's what I think is probably a really important lesson learned from the vacating of this conviction at the Supreme Court level. Yeah, I, t I totally think that's right. I think um, so this is DOJ, this uh, the current example you just gave. This is DOJ trying to avoid what we call bad law. Right. If you get one bad decision, you have five similar cases in five different districts, and four of them go one way, and the fifth one goes the other way in a in a in a you know an opinion that you can't really countenance, you have got to appeal that thing. If you if you have reason to do so and you believe the law and facts are on your side, you've you have an almost an obligation to appeal it, even though that's going to take more time and effort, because you don't want that bad decision hanging out there to potentially be used as a as a precedent for other you know bad decisions decisions you think would be contrary to the law. Not different at all from the situation we had in Florida with the Mar-a-Lago case, right? Uh, Judge Eileen Cannon in her. Uh, uh, I don't know how to even describe it. Notorious decision to appoint a special master in the Mar-a-Lago case. Um, you know, initially I was kind of not a fan of DOJ appealing that because I felt like this is really going to slow them down. And what they need right now is speed. 
is this really going to be that precedential anyway? This case is so unique on the facts, but they clearly disagreed with me, which is not the first time. And they appealed it because they felt like we can't live with this. This could open up a can of worms of monstrous proportions where everybody who's uh, who's been had a search warrant executed at their home, turn around and demand the appointment of a special master. And we obviously can't have that. The law doesn't support that. Um, and they were right. They did the right thing. They were right. I was wrong. Okay, there you are. You heard it. Oh, um, <laughs> and and they and they got rid of that that ruling in a resounding fashion. So back to the McDonald case. You know, this going into this case, uh, Jack Smith and his team were working with under the rules that everybody had been working with for a long time, which is the very essence of a public corruption case. Is you're in a position of trust. If you take something from someone in return for doing some official act. That's essentially public corruption. It's, you know, people refer to it as the quid pro quo. I'm the governor. You're the businessman, Allison. You come to me and say, hey, I'll pay for your daughter's wedding if you, you know, uh, whatever, if you support my product X. Well, yeah, we have a great um, example in, in Florida right now uh, with with the Matt Gates investigation into his public corruption of, of uh, you know, maybe accepting gifts like a trip to the Bahamas in order to put forth this uh, pro uh, marijuana legislation. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I mean, there, there, <clears throat> this, there's examples of this all all the time everywhere that, you know, that happen consistently and constantly. Yeah. So the 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 conventional wisdom at the time in prosecutions was you don't actually have to have an explicit I'll give you this in return for that agreement. And so that really opened up the aperture on what could be considered um, uh, what could be considered uh, an official act and, uh, a, you know, a benefit in return for that official act. So. That's the rules they were playing under. They got their conviction. McDonald appealed it. And the Supreme Court decision basically rewrote the law in public corruption cases. And essentially where we are now is you have to have an explicit quid pro quo understanding and agreement before charges can be brought because they've reset the burden so high in terms of what you have to prove to prove the kind of basics of that uh, quid pro quo uh, that public corruption cases are much harder to make, much harder to, you know, indict and succeed on in the era after McDonald's. So I'm with you. I think Smith takes a lot of lessons away from that experience. I would expect that he thinks very differently about the sort of evidence you need to prove these cases, to prove these fraud cases, these conspiracy cases, you know, from his earlier experience in the John Edwards case to prove in criminal intent in some of these kind of esoteric cases. And I would expect that those experiences are really going to have an effect on what he demands from his investigators and his attorneys uh, before he's ready to go into court and and put one, maybe the highest profile, most notorious criminal case we've seen in a century in front of a judge. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there were, you know, several other high profile cases at Penn that he oversaw the prosecution of former CIA officer Jeffrey Sterling. I'll yep. ask you about that in a second. And he also oversaw the Department of Justice investigation into House Majority Leader Tom DeLay and and, and made some interesting decisions in both of those cases. Can you tell us uh, briefly about Jeffrey Sterling and Tom DeLay? Sure. So Jeffrey Sterling was prosecuted essentially for, you know, leaking classified information involved uh, regarding CIA operations. Um, it was a really hard case. 
Uh, it was one that relied upon the required testimony of a journalist about conversations that he had had with uh, Sterling. And so there were all kinds of battles over whether or not that journalist would be subpoenaed to testify and what they would have to testify to and all sorts of things like that. Very complicated case to navigate those First Amendment issues, but DOJ uh, and Je and Smith's pin section uh, handled that very well and got a conviction in that case. On the delay investigation, that was one of the ones that we talked about earlier, where Jack Smith came in, reviewed it, and just decided there is not enough here uh, to go along with. And I think people on both sides of the House, well, certainly on the Republican side, were 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 really impressed with his kind of unbiased approach to the case. Uh, one Republican source telling. CNN that Jack Smith made a, quote, just decision to decline prosecution. So, you know, hopefully a little bit of that credibility rolls with him. That should protect him in this case for all of about maybe five and a half minutes, and then it will be in the past and they will resume attacking him viciously. So there we go. Yeah, true. And and I really think that that Jeffrey Sterling case has a lot of parallels uh, because it, it had to do with uh, leaking of, of classified. And I, I think that there was probably a lot learned uh, from from that conviction and and how it might apply uh, here too, and then for for a couple of years after that, he he went down to um, first assistant U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Tennessee, and then acting U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Tennessee, and he left in early September 2017, and then became the vice president of litigation at Hospital Corporation of America. Is this his only like <laughs> private sector gig that he's ever had? <laughs> That does that one makes no sense to me at all. And it seems like he was probably only in it for a couple of months because he was like, I gotta get out of this Trump administration, man. Yeah, I'm what am I doing? It might that might have been it. Maybe it was the only exit. And he was like, you know, you're when you've been on the highway for too long, you don't even know where you are. He's like, I gotta get off this thing. I don't know where this? it's gonna put me, but Junction, I'm in Texas. Yeah, here we go. We're staying I'm running this. litigation for a hospital now, but it's better than where I was. Yeah, yeah. And then mm. he gets picked back up by uh by the Hague. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And um, because it, it, th there's a lot going on uh, here with this, we could do it. Like I said, uh, you know, like you said earlier, a whole hour on, on this uh, particular uh, these cases here. But it, it, back in the 90s. Right. We had the breakup. Yep, of, of yep, yep. Post communist Yugoslavia, which led to conflicts in Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. And like just all of that, like whole area in that post-communist breakup in the 90s, um, you know, is what kicked off those conflicts. And of course, you know, That's we have right. 28 years later, he gets there and yep. and starts looking at some stuff with Kosovo. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, during those uh, wars in the 90s, you know, atrocities committed on many different sides. We tend to think mostly about the Serbs and, uh, you know, the genocide against the Muslims. And and that was, of course, quite some time ago. Now, during that fight, I think the important thing to know here is the NATO-backed forces from Kosovo, which is the Kosovo Liberation Army, were kind of widely seen as like, you know, the freedom fighters and the protectors in this battle. And they had the support, as I said, of NATO and the Western Alliance. Um, well, it turns out in 2008, a Swiss prosecutor uncovered that the KLA also was engaged uh, in war crimes, which included the harvesting and selling of organs of prisoners. So they were like cutting organs out of people and selling them for profit. Uh, the KL leader, uh, Hashem, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but I'm just going to say Fachi, 
was involved in this activity. He goes on after the conflict as this hero of Kosovo. He goes into politics. I think he does a stint as prime minister and ends up as president of Kosovo. Well, in 2014, prosecutors on loan from the U.S. established the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office to investigate and prosecute former KLA members. In 2018, Jack Smith gets brought back over to The Hague to run that office. Now, he walks in again to basically an investigative unit in shambles. The stuff they're looking at is decades old. Witnesses have been lost. Many of them feel like they've been lied to by former investigators and prosecutors who didn't follow through on the promises they made. Um, so that so it was really a very, um, it's been described as, as just a, a mess. So in comes Jack Smith and basically rebuilds this thing from the ground up in the model of a U.S. organized crime prosecution, right? He sets about recruiting witnesses that can essentially connect the actual atrocities, the trigger pullers, right? The guys who did the bad things on the ground with the leadership figures who issued those orders, who kind of executed those plans and kind of were responsible for the whole thing. That's what gets you from those trigger pullers up to a guy like the president of Kosovo. Very relevant in the January 6th investigation. Very much When you're so. talking about if there's any connections at all between the boots on the ground attack on the Capitol and the, and the leaders of the insurrection uh, going all the way up to Donald Trump. Yeah, no question. No question. And, um, and he, he pulls it off. He makes, you know, the builds, the miracle case um, in June of 2020, his office reveals that Thatcher had been indicted and he makes this revelation on the eve of Thatcher's meeting with, None other than Donald Trump at the White House. So apparently I had missed this when it happened, but apparently uh, I guess the Trump administration was thinking about this as like a major diplomatic uh, achievement. And then they find out the guy that they're meeting with has just been indicted as a war criminal. Um, some folks have, you know, uh, have speculated that the timing was was set to kind of disrupt Thatcher's efforts to lobby Trump to potentially sink the case. Um, mm. Who knows? That's all. That's all. Uh, I think speculation at this point. But nevertheless, well, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty how, safe speculation. I mean, how many yeah. they tried to lobby the Hulk Bank to get that dropped? They tried to lobby the Venezuelan yep. coup thing to get dropped. Rudy. Benchkowski, uh, all these guys were involved right, in all that. IMDb, so. what was it? One, one MDB and <laughs> all those other cases. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is not this is not new uh, new business in in Washington. But as you reminded me just before the show, um, we had some. You know, uh, uh, Smith had some notable success in the Hague just before taking a special counsel gig. Yeah, absolutely. This this came down just on December sixteenth. That's two weeks ago. Uh, and as CNN reports, a war crimes tribunal in The Hague on Friday sentenced a former commander of the Kosovo Liberation Army, the KLA, to 26 years in prison for the war crimes of arbitrary detention, torture and murder. Uh, the Mustafa case, that's uh, Salim Mustafa, was one overseen by Jack Smith, uh, as we've talked about. The panel of judges in the tribunal found Mustafa guilty of crimes that occurred in 1999 in a village in Kosovo used by a base by the KLA unit that Mustafa led during the conflict with Serbian government 
forces. This is the first war crimes verdict in the Kosovo tribunal, and uh, it was 26 years. And uh, actually, you know what? This is, I promised a little bit earlier in the show that we had some tape uh, of of Jack Smith. I believe this is him in his closing argument, uh, or at least in part of the closing arguments or the summation. I'm not sure what they call it in the ICC. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but let's take a listen to that. Mr. Mustafa, whose acts have caused suffering that left indelible wounds in the bodies and the minds of the victims who suffered through it. As a prosecutor, it is beyond my remit to argue to you or decide what wars were just and what wars were not. But I can say with conviction that war crimes on one side do not justify war crimes on the other side. Mr. Gucciati and Mr. Harid and I are vocal opponents of this institution, denigrating anyone who would recognize or cooperate with the Kosovo Specialist Chambers or the Specialist Prosecutor's Office as spies, collaborators, and traitors who betrayed their fellow countrymen. So, yeah, 26-year conviction, successful conviction in his last moments at The Hague. That's right. Yeah, and that 26-year conviction came a month after he was appointed a special counsel. Now, here we are, and he's still, like, leaving ripples behind him uh, of, of successful prosecutions during his time at The Hague. Yeah, this, as his colleagues said, this is a guy who gets things done. Um, and, you know, Merrick Garland, the notoriously under <laughs> underspoken Merrick Garland uh, said in his announcement, Mr. Smith is the right choice to complete these matters in an even handed and urgent matter, period. No, nothing else necessary. And I think that's what um, that's what we've seen at this look back over his career. So, you know, John L. Smith at this point is our special counsel. His, uh, in terms of his family life, he's married to Katie Shavini, I think, if I'm pronouncing that probably also incorrectly. She is a documentary filmmaker. Um, a lot of nonsense has been made about the fact that she was a producer on Michelle Obama's film Becoming and that she donated to President Biden's uh, reelection campaign. Again, this is America. Your spouse is allowed to have a political opinion uh, and it doesn't it maybe it's similar to your own. Maybe it's not um, having being married to someone who has political opinions doesn't make you political in the work that you do for the United States government. So good for him and good for her. Um, they also have one daughter, which is great. And of course, we mentioned that Jack is an avid triathlon uh, athlete. I read somewhere that he's a former member of the USA triathlon team. I haven't confirmed that, but I like to think that it's true. So I will. Um, <laughs> and of course, we know that he's currently on the mend from a, from a recent bike accident. So what does all this tell us quickly, Allison, as we now think about these things in, in retrospect? I mean, some of the takeaways that I get from his bio this guy's a team player from his very first days in school, all the way up to every every position he's had, whether that's as a line assistant, run, assistant running cases or as a supervisor overseeing those things. He also has a massive body of criminal investigative and prosecutorial experience. Much of it, I would note, targeting high profile, politically sensitive people and a ton of experience leading, supervising and overseeing big, complicated high profile investigations. And that is good for his current work. Yeah. And he also has the experience of, of connecting boots on the ground, uh, sort of violent extremists to the leaders of those violent extremist movements. 
uh, which I think will come in handy. He's got that experience in, in the case, the CIA officer case about classified. So he knows he's very familiar with that. And I mean, just prosecutor from from stem to stern, just prosecutor. Uh, he's got so much experience prosecuting cases and in trial, not only here, but abroad uh, for a, for various levels of people. You know, the leader of the KLA, you know, are like just absolutely top level politicized investigations. He knows how to navigate these uh, super well. And I think I, 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 you know, I can't think of a better fit, honestly, uh, with all of that experience to bring into this particular case, uh, especially with the eye on the sense of urgency, because he seems to have that. And he and he is a. He is a fish or cut bait guy as well. And I think we've seen that mm-hmm. from his past prosecutions. Like, if I don't have it, I'm closing it. And, and That's right. Move on. Yeah. And I think that that could temper the guy who's in charge of the finance section, who uh, wasn't necessarily a fish or cut bait kind of a fellow <laughs> with regard well, maybe, to your investigation. Maybe he'll learn a few things from his new boss. <laughs> One can only help. Yeah. So, yeah. I agree with you. I think he's a great candidate for this role, incredibly well-placed. And now, Jack Smith, let's see what you got. You're in the right place at the right time. Now it's just a matter of doing it. And um, we will be here watching every development of that and uh, talking to you all along the way. So it's going to be a fun ride. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to the year of accountability. And thank you for listening to the Jack podcast. If you want to become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash Mueller, she wrote. We appreciate you. I've been Allison Gill. And I am Andy McCabe. We'll see you next time. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the show's too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album, Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This happens to pay for with somebody else's money. M-S-W. Media.